All right, good morning. I feel like that song's like a personal challenge to me to keep my energy up. So we'll see. I don't know if I'm feeling it, but we'll see. All right, we're in the fourth week of a series entitled Free when we're looking at the New Testament book of Galatians. Uh, The book of Galatians is all about freedom in Jesus Christ through the gospel. Uh, As we've been seeing these past couple weeks, freedom is a complex issue. Uh, We all want freedom, but life often reminds us that although we may make free choices, they often can lead to destinations that enslave or imprison us. In fact, the Apostle Paul is trying to communicate through this little New Testament book that to be truly free, we must not only have the power and the right to do something, but we must also be able to walk away from whatever our choices are without destructive consequences. In the book of Galatians, Paul is arguing that the pathway of freedom is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Stated very simply, the gospel of Jesus Christ It's just the story of Jesus putting the world back to the way it should be through his son, Jesus. In our first week, and I can do this very briefly and we'll move right into what we have this morning. But in our first week, we saw that the gospel of Jesus Christ includes two core concepts. First, we are helpless and in need of a savior. We need to be rescued. The problem with us sometimes is it's not like a drowning man who realizes his desperate need to be saved. We are drowning and we don't realize it. The drowning process takes a lifetime. And if we're not careful, we'll be comfortable, you know, flailing in the water and we will never realize it. But the gospel teaches us that we are desperately in need of saving. We are helpless and in need of rescue. The gospel teaches also that Jesus is our rescuer. He is more than our example. He is more than a teacher. He is our savior. He has come to rescue us from our sin. In week two, we saw that uh, the, the story of Paul's life. We looked at what Paul had gone through when he came to conversion, what his life was like beforehand, and how the gospel had changed his entire life. Last week, we looked at the question, what makes me acceptable before God? And saw that Paul's answer was that we are made acceptable to God through our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, this week, we come to another question, and it's really the continuation of Paul's thought. Once we understand that we are accepted by God through faith, and not on the basis of anything that we do or have done, the logical question to ask is, what's next? How do we grow in our intimacy, and how do we live our life before God? Once we understand that we're accepted, not on anything that we do, then we are freed from the burden of having to spend our entire life working to please God because he's already pleased with us. We're freed with having to do all kinds of things to be accepted by God because he already accepts us. But then how do we live the rest of our life? How do we grow spiritually? And how do we grow in intimacy with God? And how do we live the rest of it? It's not as if we come to salvation and life just ends. We have a whole life to live. What do we do with it? Today, that is what we're going to be talking about during this entire sermon in a passage of scripture found in Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. You can follow along with me in your Bibles on page 944. And uh, I'm going to read it here in a second. What you'll see in just a moment is uh, I want you to think through as I read this passage that question, how do I grow in my faith? How do I grow spiritually? How do I live my life as a person who's been accepted by God, but living the rest of it? 
And as I read Galatians 3, my hope is to make it as simple and as clear to you as possible. And as we read it, you'll see it's kind of complex, but I hope to break it down in a way that will be really easy to remember and really easy to understand. But let's follow along and hear the words that the apostle wrote 2,000 years ago. Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you have heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain if it really was in vain? So again I ask, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to, him, credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. I've spent a lot of time in this little passage this week, and I have to be honest, the first couple days I didn't understand what it said, and I spent a lot of time, and I think I have it, where I can clearly communicate at least what I think it is saying. But before I get into exactly what it's saying, I want to I preface it with this just really simple little illustration. I came across this in a, a commentary I was reading by N.T. Wright. Really simple, easy little commentaries to read uh, called The New Testament for Everyone. But in this little commentary, he told a story about a man. His name was Charles Blondin. He lived uh, 1824 to 1897, a long time ago. And he was a very, very famous tightrope walker. I don't know how you become a famous tightrope walker, but what he was famous for, and it kind of makes sense to us because we're close, uh, he was famous for putting a tightrope along the gorge in Niagara Falls and walking across it. He was very famous. He was famous. He, would, he got so good at this that he did little gimmicky things. He would not only walk across the tightrope across the gorge, but he would start to uh, walk backwards and forwards to show his balance. At one point, we are told he even set up a table on a tightrope. I, I tried to find a picture of that, and I don't know how that works. But he set up a table, he sat on a chair, and he ate a meal on a tightrope over Niagara Falls. But perhaps his most famous stunt or his uh, gimmick uh, was when he asked a volunteer that was watching him to come forward and to let him carry him on his back across the gourd. In what must have been one of the most supreme acts of physical trust ever placed by a human being in another, a brave and we might say foolish man stepped forward and was carried on the great man's shoulders. And I even found a picture of this. I don't think it's a real photograph, though. Now, supposing halfway across, now this is so interesting, and you're going to get the feel in just a moment of what 
Paul is trying to do in Galatians chapter 3, especially in the beginning. Now, supposing halfway across, the man on the back of Charles Blondin turned and said, look here, this is all very well, but I really don't trust you anymore. Probably shouldn't have even gone forward, yeah? Let me down and I will walk the rest from here. One can only imagine the retort that Charles Blondin must have had for that man. Are you an idiot? Have you lost the senses of your mind? And Paul is saying that is exactly what is going on here in Galatians chapter 3. In fact, in two different ways, he says it in verse 1 and 3 in almost a statement and question form. Are you so foolish? Question. What has made you so foolish? No, no, let me look at it again. You foolish Galatians, verse 1, verse 3, are you so foolish? It is the exact question of Charles Blondin. Once you have begun through trust, it is not wise halfway through to kind of try to continue on your own. You know, in verses 1 through 5, as we begin this text, Paul really begins by asking a series of questions. In fact, in just these short five verses, he asked six questions. And as I've studied it this week, the, the, the dominant image that just keep coming to my mind as I looked at these questions was almost like a, uh, a parent-child lecture format. My mom, uh, I don't know, I never really talked to my parents a lot about their theory on spanking or discipline, but I learned their theory even though they never taught it to me. It was not spanking, it was, uh, it was lecture format. And I can remember sitting at the um, counter right by our kitchen, we had these little bar stools, and I can remember my mom talking to me. And I know she'll listen to this and hopefully we'll have a good laugh. If not, then I'm in trouble, Yeah. But I can remember just moments, and I don't even know this is true. It's just my recollection. Uh, I can remember sitting on those little stools and having my mom talk to me. And I remember one occasion even starting to pull my hair out, thinking to myself, just beat me, you know? I'm just ready for you to be done talking to me. I cannot take any more of your lecturing and your questioning. And that's exactly what's going on. Let me show you. You'll get the feel. It is exactly like a parent. And imagine your little child doing something so incredibly stupid at a time point in their life when they are old enough to know better and have done it anyway. And imagine your child sitting on that little bar stool being reamed or my mom never yelled. She really didn't. It wasn't the, I didn't pull my hair out because the volume, it was more the pitch and the continuousness of it. (laughs) But... With that image in mind, let me read you these questions. Verse 1. Who has bewitched you? Right? That's like, who turned you into an idiot? That's what a mom might say. If she was not a nice mom, my mom wouldn't do that. Verse 2. Did you receive the Spirit? Or no, no, I like verse 2 because it's exactly how parenting works. I would like to learn just one more thing from you. But there's five more questions. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you've heard? Question number three, after question number one, which is who has bewitched you, are you so foolish? Are you so foolish? Question number four, after beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Question five, have you experienced so much in vain or for nothing if it really was in vain? 
That's like my mom saying, have I taught you so much for nothing? If it really was for nothing, the uh, implied thinking behind that is, man, I hope my parenting wasn't a complete waste of time. Verse in question six. So again, I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by works of the law or by believing what you have heard? What Paul is trying to communicate through this series of questions is one really simple, simple statement that undergirds this entire passage, verses 1 through 14. And the statement is very simply this. We are not saved by the gospel. We're not only saved by the gospel, but we also grow by the gospel. We are not only saved by faith, but we also grow by faith. In verse 1, Paul begins by summing up the aspect of the gospel. This aspect, this core aspect. Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was pictured or portrayed clearly for you as crucified. What Paul is saying is, I taught you clearly what you're supposed to do. It's like the parents sitting their child down and say, we talked about this. We told you not to touch that, and now it's broken. I clearly showed you what button not to push, and you pushed that button. And Paul is saying, I clearly portrayed for you the gospel in Jesus Christ crucified. Notice that when Paul is talking, this statement of how they are supposed to live begins, and it is a statement that radically changes how we are supposed to live. But it is a statement not of teaching on what you are to do, but ultimately a statement on history, isn't it? That changes what you're supposed to do. Timothy Keller sums it up well when he says the gospel is an announcement of historical events before it is instructions on how to live. But the announcement of historical events, Christ Jesus clearly portrayed as crucified, is clearly more than just you know, Charles Blondin walked across the gorge in the late 1800s, mid to late 1800s. It's a statement of historical event that changes now the reality of what we are to do, which is why Paul continues with these next series of five questions that we just went over. And hopefully you didn't have flashbacks too. I didn't put it in my small group discussion guide this week, but you know, if you're in a small group and you're looking for just a fun thing to do, you should just ask yourself each other and hear other people talk about it. This would just be fun. What was your worst discipline moment from your parents? You know, that'd be a fun discussion. But that's Paul's whole point with those series of five questions. Christ Jesus was clearly portrayed to you as crucified. Now, why have you lived like you didn't understand what that means? You know, Paul is really drilling down on an extremely common problem. Not just a problem 2,000 years ago, but a problem that's common today. And it's a problem that's pervasive in the church. It's pervasive in this church. And it's pervasive in my own life. It is common, meaning that we all struggle with it. But it is a big deal. Just because it is common does not make it inconsequential. You know, it's like the child saying to their parents, well, everybody else does it. And the parents saying, yeah, but that's dumb, right? Just because everybody spends more than they should make doesn't mean you should spend more than you make just because everybody does it. 
that is a pathway of destruction. But my sermon is not on finance. And just because everybody eats McDonald's five days a week doesn't mean you should. You will be in trouble. And my sermon isn't on food or money. But you get the point. Just because a problem is is common does not make it inconsequential. And the problem that Paul is drilling down on here is the problem of Christians, people who've understood the gospel, that we are saved by Christ plus nothing, trying to grow in their faith by their own human effort. That's the problem. It's pervasive. It's like fast food and spending more than you make. It's pervasive. But it's a big deal. We cannot grow in our faith by simply human effort. If we came to faith through faith, or if we came to Christ through faith in the gospel, then we will grow in our faith, we will grow in the gospel through faith in the gospel. That is what Paul is saying. The problem is, or the language of the text, is that we seek to grow through the law or through the flesh versus the spirit or through our faith. And in this passage, Paul really gives us three reasons why we should not try to grow in our faith by human effort. And I'm just going to highlight them for you. All three of them, are, uh, the first one is uh, the easiest to understand. The last two are a little more complex and require some biblical knowledge, but I'll seek to make it as clear and simple as I can. He's writing to an ancient Jewish audience that these things would have made incredible sense to, and I'm going to try to give you some context so you can grab onto it. But he's giving you, us in this passage, it's what it's all about, three reasons why we should not try to grow in our faith by human effort. And I'm just going to tell them, you, tell, tell them to you, and then I'm going to develop them. The first one is, God has given us his spirit. We should not try to grow by human effort because we have something so much better. We have the spirit of God. The second reason he gives us is that we are already true children of Abraham. We are already true children of Abraham. And the third reason is the Old Testament rejects this idea. Now, all three of these concepts, before I develop them, are brand new concepts to the book of Galatians. I highlight this often because uh, Galatians is Paul's first letter. And he writes this letter to this region of Galatia and to these men and women who are struggling to add the law to the gospel as a means by being saved and growing in their faith. Paul is saying that you cannot do it. And in these, just like last week when we looked at we are accepted by uh, God, by faith, now he's going to talk about growing by faith. But last week he introduced that idea of justification. This week he's introducing three new ideas. He's introducing the Spirit, he's introducing Abraham, and he's introducing Old Testament citations. In fact, Up until this point in the book of Galatians, Paul has not cited the Old Testament at all. And so he is going to develop this idea that we cannot grow through human effort through these three means. Let me tackle them one by one. First, God has given us the Spirit. Verses 1 through 5. I want you to notice this double uh, either-or that Paul presents. The either-or is spirit-faith, spirit-slash-faith, or Flesh versus law. Paul is saying that the Galatians' pursuit of the law through circumcision, through the dietary laws, 
through Sabbath. He doesn't address that, but that's the third core distinguishing marker. Or any other aspect of the law as their means for spiritual growth is contrary to the gospel. As N.T. Wright sums up very well, it is like they are trying to climb off the back of the one who is carrying them across the gorge into safety, insisting on doing things their own way, even when they know it will lead them to disaster. They are forgetting how this whole thing started, and they are thinking they can reinvent the rules halfway across. Paul is saying, we already have the Spirit of God. Why would anyone return to the law? The Spirit of God, God himself, is a gift to every Christian the moment they place their faith in Jesus Christ. And if you have the second person of the, or the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of God himself, indwelling you and empowering you for the task, why would you seek to ignore his presence and his guidance. We already have the Spirit. We don't gain it through circumcision, thank goodness. We don't gain it through Sabbath-keeping. We don't gain it through dietary laws or any other means. We already have it. The second thing he says, why we should not try to grow by human effort, is that we are already true children of Abraham. Now, Abraham... In the Jewish faith is a really, really big deal. Uh, in fact, Abraham was kind of the father of the Jewish nation. He was the man that God called out of a land called Ur and brought into a new land with a specific uh, goal of him bringing the goodness and the blessings of God to the world. And Paul really, in verses 6 through 9, introduces Abraham, who every Jewish person claimed was a child of. I'm a child of Abraham. And I'm a child of Abraham because I do what children of Abraham do. I circumcise, I'm circumcised, I keep Sabbath, and I follow the dietary laws. And Paul says, you are already children of Abraham without dietary laws, Sabbath, or circumcision. And he quotes two Old Testament texts to make his point. The first one he quotes is Genesis 15. It's in verse 6, and his point is that Abraham entered into a relationship with God through faith. Notice what the text says in verse 6. So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, it's important, and Paul's Paul's ancient Galatian audience would have easily and understood this. Abraham in Galatians or in Genesis chapter 15 is has a covenant ratified with him and God makes his covenant. He's already made a covenant with Abraham and he says it again and he affirms that covenant. And in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham says, I believe you. And the text says it was credited to him as righteousness by his faith, by his belief. And what every ancient Jewish man or woman would have known is that that event happens before Abraham is given the sign of circumcision. And you can go back in the Old Testament and you can read this, but it is Genesis chapter 17 that God then again comes to Abraham and says, you and all of your descendants, this will be the sign that I know that you're one of mine, that you are circumcised. 
And then he has them all circumcised, him and his household. But Paul's point here is that Abraham's righteousness did not come as a result of circumcision, but it came before circumcision. Circumcision was just a sign that, uh, a sign that faith already existed. In some ways, in our church, we would say this is kind of similar to baptism. Baptism doesn't save us, but baptism is a sign that we have understood that Christ saves us and we place our faith in him. And so Paul is saying first that Abraham, before circumcision, had already entered into a relationship with God through faith. And so circumcision, dietary laws, and Sabbath are not necessary. The second thing he is saying is that Abraham was always meant to bless everyone. Abraham was always meant to bless everyone. We see this in verse 8, and it's really a quotation of Genesis 12, verse 3. Now, Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3 is perhaps one of the most well-known passages in the Bible, or one of the most important. It's referred to as the Abrahamic covenant, or the Abrahamic agreement, when God initially calls Abraham to leave his land and to go into a land that he will be shown, and that through Abraham, all nations of the world will be blessed. If you were doing the Bible project, the, uh, the readings and the videos that we've been going through as a church family uh, these last couple months, and as we're trying to encourage everyone to read through the Bible in the year, this past week, if you had watched the video called Holiness that they put out, which is just fantastic, you would have seen that it has always been, it's easy to miss this when you read the Old Testament, and if you're plotting through, we're in a part of the Bible project or the Bible reading plan that's difficult. Just keep going. And if you're plotting through, it's easy to miss this, and you're getting firsthand, you're seeing how it's easy to miss it. But Paul is saying it was always meant for everyone, always. God's goal was not to set up a nation Israel and to make it really, really difficult for anyone who's not of that ethnic origin to experience God and his blessings. That's not what God ever intended to do. In fact, what God intends to do is he intends to have representatives who go out amongst people who aren't like them and to take the message of Jesus Christ and to touch and to speak and to interact and see the blessings of God start to transform reality around them. And we see this in the Old Testament. It's just that Israel failed to take up this, ban, uh, this man, mantra, it, it failed in its duty. And we see that Jesus was really the man who fulfilled what Israel was meant to do. And it's so beautiful. We see this throughout the Old Testament, but as we read, it, it gets lost in the minutiae, and it's so um, big, and it's so intimidating, and it's so rule-driven at times. But let me give you a few examples. In Exodus, when the people of Israel are at Mount Sinai receiving the law, God comes to them and says, get ready and consecrate yourself because I want to make you a kingdom of priests. A priest has one role, to go between people and God so that they might experience God. The people of Israel were scared and they didn't go up to the mountain and they never became and fulfilled their role as a kingdom of priests. 
But we see glimpses throughout the Old Testament, both with uh, outside of Israel and inside Israel, that people who place their faith in Jesus independent of the law can have a relationship with God. One of the most famous is a woman named Rahab. We learned about her in the book of Joshua. The woman Rahab was a prostitute. Rahab had almost no knowledge about who God was. In fact, the text tells us all that she knew of God was that he was mighty and he was destroying the nations around them for their wickedness. And with that little bit of information outside of dietary laws, outside of Sabbath, outside of circumcision, she places her faith in Jesus and she exhibits that faith. You can read about it all in Joshua 2 through taking in a group of spies, two spies, and placing her faith in God. We read in 2 Chronicles chapter 30, there was a great king. This is many, many years after Rahab. And there was a great king. His name was Hezekiah. And for years, the people of Judah, the people of Israel, had failed and had rebelled against God. And Hezekiah, a good king, whose dad was a very bad king, Manasseh, decides that he will renew his agreement, his covenant with God. And he holds Passover. And it's the first time Passover, this great Jewish celebration, has been held in years. But the people of Israel are not prepared for Passover. For if you read in the law, and we've been reading in Leviticus and Numbers, in Exodus, when you come to Passover, you're supposed to purify yourself. And there was a whole ritual process that you had to go through. But you know, you can go home and read it this afternoon. In 2 Chronicles chapter 30, Hezekiah prays to God and he says, God, we want to celebrate you and celebrate Passover, but we're not clean. We haven't done the ritual. And in one of the, my favorite and most beautiful passages, God hears the prayer of Hezekiah, heals them and purifies them independent of the law so that they can celebrate Passover and experience joy before him. In Ezekiel, I think it's 46 or 47. I looked it up, but my mind is whatever. There is this picture of a temple, and you've got to read this one. There's this picture of a temple, and it's a temple where all of a sudden it's really weird. Sometimes the prophets almost are like psychedelic, you know, but it's not LSD literature, it's prophetic literature. And there's this picture of this temple. And out of the temple, there is a river that is flowing. It's water that is dripping down. And as this water drips down, it starts to flow through the nation in the land of Israel. And everywhere it goes, plants are sprouting up. And the world is being restored. And the picture is, God is coming to man. And the best picture we ever get of it is Jesus himself. And as Jesus walks and he interacts with people, what is happening? He is touching, he is interacting, he is speaking. And the blind are seeing, the lame are walking, the deaf are hearing, the dead are being raised. For no longer must we purify ourselves to come to God, but God is coming to us through the seed of Abraham. And Paul is saying, why would you seek to grow by human effort? You've been given the spirit. You don't have to do it through the flesh or through the law. And he's saying, you don't have to do circumcision. You don't have to do Sabbath. And you don't have to do dietary laws to be a children of Abraham. In fact, if you've just placed your faith in God, you are already a true child of Abraham. And number three, 
The Old Testament rejects this idea. This is kind of Paul's ancient way of doing what we do in modern day every so often. It's like, that's just not what the Bible teaches. Why shouldn't we grow through human effort? Because that's not what the Bible teaches. And here's what he does. He quotes in quick succession four verses uh, from the Old Testament scripture. I'm just going to summarize them for you briefly. First, he, curses, uh, he quotes Deuteronomy 27, 26, saying that the law is a curse because we cannot keep it. If the law could bring goodness, if we kept it entirely, but then we cannot keep it entirely, then it is a curse. Does this make sense? I will give you a cookie if you can jump 12 feet tall. You know, jump 12 feet. You can't jump 12 feet, so you never get a cookie. That is my kindergarten way of explaining that principle. If, we, if blessing is promised, but we are unable to accomplish the means to get the blessing, then really the means are a curse. Number two, the text tells us that reliance on the law is a sign that you don't really know God. And he quotes Habakkuk 2.4. Reliance on the law is a sign that you really don't know God. If you are walking around thinking that you are better because you don't do this or you do do this, then it is a sign that you really do not know God. Now, that is offensive. Do not be offended. Be introspective and change. Reliance on the law, reliance on what we do to earn God's favor is a sign that we really do not understand or know God. Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous will live by faith. Live by faith, not start by faith. Live by faith. The third text he quotes is from Leviticus 18.5. We just finished Leviticus uh, a week, or just this past week in the Bible Project. And his point is that the law is not based on faith. In verse 12, the law is based on human effort. It is not based on faith. But he quotes from Leviticus 18.5, and this would not have been uh, missed by his ancient audience. He quotes from the number one text on the law, Leviticus. It's all law, with a very short narrative piece in about two verses in chapter 10. He quotes from a book of the Bible that is strictly in the genre of law to say that we cannot that the law is not based on faith. And then this fourth verse is from Deuteronomy 21, 23, teaching us that Christ has bought us back from the curse of the law. Verse 13. We cannot keep the law, so it is a curse. The blessings cannot come through the law. It is a curse. But thankfully, there is one who has broken the curse. His name is Jesus. And he broke it through his death and resurrection in a historical event that now changes everything. All of these three things, God has given us a spirit, we are already true children of Abraham, and the Old Testament uh, rejects this idea of growing through human effort. Paul's point is summarized in verse 14, and it is this. He redeemed us in order that the blessings given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Paul's overarching point, the reason why we cannot grow through human effort and the reason why all this 
takes place is because it is not the destination in which God is hoping that we will get to. And his destination, what God desires for this world, is that God's blessing, his promised blessing, would come to everyone. His promised blessing would come to everyone. In verse 14, there is almost like uh, this underlying image that goes through my mind as I read it. He redeemed us. He bought us back. That is the language of redemption, to buy it back. If you take something to a pawn shop and you pawn away your ring, if you go back and you have the money to buy it back, that's redeem, to buy it back. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come. This language of might come is almost like there is a pathway. The pathway was blocked. You can think of plumbing. You can think of a traffic jam. There is a pathway, and it was blocked. But Christ has come to undo the blockage. Um, It's really the image of a traffic jam, isn't it? Have you ever been in a traffic jam? And some people are better equipped for this than others. I don't happen to be one that's well-equipped to be delayed. But every so often it'll happen, and you'll be on an expressway, and it's happened to me a couple times. We have family that live in Missouri, Sarah's parents, and we have to go on a long trip. And when you're going on a long trip, you are not emotionally ready for delays. And uh, every so often something will happen, and um, you're delayed. I remember on one particular occasion, the line was so long, I couldn't tell what the event was way up in front. And when we finally got there, it was a car that had burst into flames. And then I always, I I have enough integrity to at least feel a little guilty for, you know, being upset that I was delayed when a horrible event has just occurred. But the imagery is really of this traffic jam. Now, we need to ask ourselves what's going on with what he's doing in verse 14. First of all, what is the destination of faith in Jesus? Verse 14 is very clear. The destination is blessing for everyone. What is the roadblock? The roadblock is our reliance on human effort to please God. Just in the same way that a burning car was the roadblock on my trip to Missouri, the roadblock for people experiencing the blessings of God is a reliance on human effort. And then lastly, how do we clear the roadblock? It took a couple hours, but eventually they cleared that that car wreck away. You know what I mean? How do we clear the roadblock? Uh, and, And it's really simple. Through relying on what Christ has done on our behalf, not just for our salvation, but for our spiritual growth. We need to continue to place our trust in Jesus Christ for our entire lives, not just our salvation, to place our hope in the gospel. We need to ask ourselves over and over and over again, if I already believed, then I know I'm accepted by God. And if I really believe that God accepts me, how would that change things? If I really believe that God accepts me, even with the past that I have, then I should be freed from guilt. And I should be able to walk forward in that freedom. And to walk in guilt 
And I'm not trying to put guilt on you on this because it is so hard to overcome guilt and be freed from it. All I can say to you is that is not what God wants for you. But to walk in guilt is to not walk in the faith that Christ has freed you from it. If I really believe that Christ accepted me, not on the basis of what I've done to make right the wrongs of my past, but on the basis of Jesus, how would I live different? If I really believed that Christ accepts me independent of my past, how would I treat others who are different from me or who maybe are like the way I used to be? Knowing God loves them so desperately and wants them back. You know, perhaps the closing thought that I'd love to leave you with, and as you go out these doors just and eat lunch or do whatever it is you do on a Sunday afternoon, you can't watch football anymore, is if only we could grasp the lengths that God has gone to so that we might be accepted, what would we do different? If only we could understand the depths to which God loves each and every one of us, how might we be changed? And let me pray for you, because he wants that for you. Father, I ask that you would change our hearts to experience the freedom that you offer us through Jesus Christ. We thank you for your word, which transforms and breaks through our defaults of sin and guilt and shame. And we ask that you would fill us with a vision of Jesus Christ and the empowerment to follow him and rely on him for our, with our entire lives. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.